a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we can revel in wrong think, question the narratives, and maybe even fill in some of the gaps that can help us better understand the world around us. I'm very pleased to welcome Eric Parker as my guest. Eric, thanks for coming on the show today. How are you doing, Brian? Fantastic. Now, some people are going to be thinking, Eric Parker, Eric Parker, I know that name. Where do I know that name from? And rather than me trying to describe it, Eric, most people are going to remember a picture of you from April of 2014 uh, lying there on the the freeway during a a certain standoff down at a place called Bundy Ranch. And, And, oh, that Eric Parker. But here you are now. It's eight years later. You are, um, you're a free man, first of all. And you've also uh, run for office. You're a very uh, dedicated advocate for freedom. And you're also an amazing source for what's going on with the January 6th trial, particularly the Oath Keepers trial, which just started. And that's why I've got you on today to talk a little bit about what's what's happening with, with the Oath Keepers and January 6th. Well, there's a lot. Um, there, there, there is a lot, but but this specific trial started started this uh, this last week, and they did jury selection, and and that's what took up the week. A um, lot of interesting stuff coming out um, in the media about the jurors and the juror pool. Um, I know that Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers filed. Uh, more than one motion to try to change venues and a lot of that came to uh fruition with uh with with going through these jurors um i i wouldn't say that it's a jury of their peers by any means um that jury is set though um and they're they're looking to be starting um opening arguments for the prosecution opening statements um, on Monday. You know, from what I have read of, of previous trials that have taken place regarding January 6th, it sounds to me like uh, finding a fair jury or a jury that's not just going to rubber stamp and, you know, punish these people no matter what, uh, you know, try them and find them guilty no matter what. It sounds like they, they have a very hard time getting a fair shake. They're in Washington D.C. Does that uh, does that jive with your understanding as well? It, it, it does. Um, you know, there's there's been over 700 charges out. Um, 700 people charged. Um, most of them are misdemeanors and stuff, and, and they carry a max of, of six months. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think anybody who who's taken this thing to the jury box is is going to get a um, a, 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 a partial jury, um, let alone a jury of their peers, right? It's not even supposed to be partial. It's supposed to be a jury of your peers. Uh, um, so, yeah, that's that's going to be hard to find in D.C. for them, I believe. But, um, you know, I think the, the good side is that the government's reaching on these charges. And, and um, you know, if, if they do get a, a relatively fair trial and they do get to, to put forth some of this, this, the, of their own evidence, 
um, the exculpatory evidence, then then I think this this charge is going to fall fall short. And that's kind of what the government's known for, at least in my experience with with a lot of these political targeting with the DOJ is is that they they reach on the charge, um, and and then that the the failure to meet those elements within those charges and and prove them with in a shadow without a shadow of doubt um, it, it's a, a high bar and and when they reach with these charges you know it's it's kind of their own folly but we'll see how this one plays out you know it's so interesting the people who have been convicted so far and have faced you know some pretty stiff sentences have been convicted of things like parading <laughs> or just you know simple trespassing you know misdemeanors but uh, it sounds like some much more serious charges for the oath keepers i think they're the first ones i've heard of being charged with sedition and and i'm just curious are those still the the primary charges that are being leveled against them yeah they are um and they weren't originally i i, I found this interesting is is that they they didn't bring the the seditious conspiracy charge until later when when they indicted Stuart, um the founder of the Oath Keepers there um, before there was, uh, I think, some other charges at first with some of these other guys. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in Ken, uh, Ken Harrelson. He's, he's one of the defendants. And um, I, I think this, this case is going to be pretty pivotal around him specifically because the government's alleging that he led the charge into the, uh, um, uh, through the east doors and uh he he has a different story and and there's actually interestingly enough there there's there's evidence there's video um of of ken um and and what he was doing there and and he's obviously not uh first through the door they're obviously not leading any kind of charge and and they're obviously not breaking through the doors you know there's there's literally hundreds of people in front of them in this video going through open doors. Um, but a lot of this whole conspiracy is focused on his alleged actions, what the government's alleging he did. And, um, you know, again, they've got to meet this element, these elements within the charges. And um, the seditious conspiracy, it says force probably seven times. If you're to read the definition, it references force probably seven different times throughout the definition. Um, so the, it's pivotal in the, in the element um, to, to, to show that they use force and um, force and violence. Um, the only force and violence that the government's alleging in um, the actual acts of force um, are the alleged action of breaking through this door and breaking through security um, and that's just not what happened. It's as plain as day. It's in it's in video, um, which brings up my concern. My concern is is that the government is going to withhold exculpatory evidence. This is what they do. This is what they do to us. Um, I was going to say, where have we seen helpful. that before? <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> right, exculpatory evidence is anything that's helpful um, to to the defense to the defendants, and. Um, you know, without getting into the minutia too much of, of the legal terms and stuff, but that is ultimately what they did in Nevada was withhold exculpatory evidence, and um, a federal judge reprimanded them on 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 uh, the record and said they willfully, which which means they you know it wasn't an accident. And uh, I think that we're going to see some of the same tactics used 
and and what that's going to be is is withholding evidence and this evidence exists it's on twitter it shows ken harrelson and and what he did um and more importantly what they did not do um so i i I think that i mean it's pretty cut and dry if this video is allowed into uh into the trial and, and to be shown to the jury so that's that's my question right now so far um is is are we going to get to see this video of Ken Harrelson and what what the Oath Keepers actually did do and what they didn't do? Well, in I, that moment, I'm grateful that you are following this because having been in the belly of the beast yourself, you have a much better understanding of this than than the average person, as well as as an understanding of how far the government will go and how far it will stretch the limits of truth in order to try to to make its case. Yeah, yeah, no, and that that is what they do. They put on a a a, a presentation in the media and, and a narrative, um, you know. But but this is really this isn't about anything besides these charges, right? Um, I've I've got a, a vested interest in due process, and you know, I I didn't go to the sixth um, rally, and, and uh, I'm not an oath keeper, but I I do have a vested interest in due process, and and um, the rights of the accused are very, very important. And I think that we're about to see some of the same, same plays that we've seen over the years. And uh, um, it'll be really unfortunate if they try to do the same things again and, and withhold this exculpatory evidence. Eric, we've only got about 30 seconds or so here, but I've got to ask you, why should this matter to people? Even if they don't like Stuart Rhodes or they don't like Oath Keepers, why should people give a damn about what's happening in this trial? Because it could be them. Um, we've seen, you know, when I walked off that bridge in 2014, I, I, I said that it, it, it will be everybody. Anybody that disagrees, anybody that dissents will be considered a domestic terrorist, right? I went through years of, of being labeled. And um, and we're seeing it now. And we see it. It, it doesn't matter if your parents at a, at a, at a meeting and, and you're disagreeing with your, your school board or if you're um, protesting COVID regulations, draconian health measures, and forced vaccinations. It doesn't matter. You're going to be labeled a domestic terrorist, and they're going to use that threat assessment against you. All right. We're talking with Eric Parker. Eric, I I would love to have regular updates from you as, as this plays out. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, a shout out to uh, garagedoorproservices.com. This is one of my sponsors uh, back in my old stomping grounds in southwestern Utah. So if you live in St. George or Cedar City or Mesquite, Nevada or Colorado City, Arizona, these are the guys you want to talk to when it comes to installation, service, and repair of your garage door. Now, that doesn't matter if it's a residential garage door or a commercial garage door. They sell American-made garage doors. They repair them. They service them. and, And this is something you'll find with Garage Door Pros. They really pay extra attention to the details and giving extremely outrageous good service. 
don't believe me? Well, I'd like you to log onto their website. I provide a link right there in my show notes. Go to Garage Door Pro Services, check out the reviews, and see what their customers are saying. They'd be the ones I would trust. Or you can call them at 435-525-2773. All right, I'm going to continue on for a few more moments in, uh, in the vein of the, the corruption of our Department of Justice. And, and I'm going to start with a question this time. Are FBI agents being pressured to create criminal plots that can then be blamed on the political right? I think I know the answer to that, or at least how I would answer that. But uh, if you have your doubts or you've been wondering, you know, is it possible? This was once, you know, fidelity, bravery, integrity. This was the premier law enforcement organization in the United States. And now it's very questionable. And, and I get it. I understand there, there are people who would say, well, you know, I don't want to doubt, you know, that these guys are not out there somehow keeping us safe from terrorists and spies and other people who would do harm to us. Well, I've got an article here from Julie Kelly written for AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. Time to investigate the FBI's sketchy CHS program. That's Confidential Human Sources program. She says they serve an important purpose in the modern-day FBI, but it's to advance a political narrative that's beneficial to the Democratic Party and the Biden regime. Julie Kelly says, to the surprise of no one paying attention, the Department of Justice recently acknowledged the use of several FBI informants in its investigation of the Oath Keepers, an alleged militia group tied to the events of January 6th. While prosecutors last week asked for a protective order to conceal from jurors information about confidential human sources expected to testify during the seditious conspiracy trial of five members of the Oath Keepers. Jury selection is now underway, and not only does the government want to prevent defense defense attorneys from asking personal questions that could reveal these informants' identities, but prosecutors don't want the sources to publicly disclose any involvement in the past or pending criminal investigations or details of the FBI-CHS program and the training and methods used by the FBI as part of their undercover operations. Now, that request, of course, is to protect the Bureau, not the informants in what appears to be another corrupt, political, unaccountable action of the FBI. For example... Court filings in special counsel John Durham's probe into Russiagate just revealed that Igor Dechenko, a uh, subsource for the infamous Steele dossier, are now facing perjury charges, now facing perjury charges rather, was hired by the FBI in March of 2017 as an informant to shield the agency from questions about the dossier's credibility in the early stages of the scandal. The Bureau put him on the payroll as a confidential human source, or CHS, making him part of the Bureau's untouchable sources and methods sanctum, and thereby protecting him and any documents referencing him from congressional and other outside scrutiny. That's what investigative reporter Paul Sperry wrote last week. The FBI hatched plot to kidnap Governor Michigan, or Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer involved numerous informants working out of multiple FBI field offices. At trial... Informants and agents confessed the rules were broken in the process of engineering the caper. Violations included sharing a bed with a target, suggesting overt acts to produce incriminating evidence, and initiating the lead informant into a fake militia to advance the plot. Another longtime informant, a convicted felon, many times over, committed at least two crimes while working the Whitmer Fed, the Whitmer Fednapping ruse and was accused by the government of acting as a double agent. Now, none of this is necessarily news inside the department, says Julie Kelly. 
She says an investigation by the Justice Department's watchdog, Inspector General Michael Horowitz, identified significant weaknesses with certain aspects of the FBI's CHS program and spelled those out in a 2019 report. Both oversight of both long-term sources and case-specific informants fell short of department standards, creating a risk that CHSs are not adequately scrutinized. FBI handling agents also failed to safeguard highly classified CHS material and often didn't use secured lines of communication. Now, all this ineptitude doesn't come cheap to the American taxpayers. Horowitz found the FBI spent an average of $42 million annually between 2012 and 2018 on informants. That's paid out in cash with little to no accountability. Dan Chappell, the lead informant in the Whitmer Fednapping, received at least $60,000 in cash and personal items for roughly seven months' work. The Bureau even compensated Chappell for a loss after selling his home. Two months after six men were arrested for conspiring to kidnap Whitmer, an FBI agent handed Chappell an envelope with at least $2,300, make that $23,000 in cash, presumably for a mission accomplished. So agents could point would-be informants to financial incentives as a reason to become a source. Some counterterrorism CHSs make hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's according to Kyle Serafin, an FBI whistleblower who worked in the Bureau's counterterrorism division. He told American Greatness by phone last Thursday, agents give piles of cash to their informants with five- and six-figure payouts. And the informants working in criminal cases aren't always upstanding citizens, Serafin said. Most are scumbags. Usually, it's rare you find one with a 9-to-5 job. Now, FBI agents are required to keep at least one source on the books, which often leads to problems for long-term informants. They become needy, they call in the middle of the night, they get arrested. Seraphin explained, sources are a pain in the ass. But CHSs serve an important purpose in the modern-day FBI, to advance a political narrative beneficial to the Democratic Party and Biden regime, particularly the existence of domestic violent extremists, in other words, Trump supporters. Informants really need to hold together groups that don't want to be together, Serafin said. The FBI keeps using informants as a hub in a wheel. And deploying informants also allows for the introduction of FBI undercover agents, which puts in motion a multifaceted effort that ultimately involves U.S. attorneys, FBI supervising agents, intelligence analysts, and main justice if it's associated with a suspected domestic terror attack. But Serafin says the result more often than not is the equivalent of entrapment. There's a moral definition that we all feel is entrapment, but the legal definition is not the same. It's predatory. People are building their FBI careers on predatory investigations of people who probably just need mental health care. They find the person they don't like, then find the crime. It's what they know, and it's effective. Now, Julie Kelly says this was certainly the case in the Whitmer Fednapping scheme. Dozens of supervising agents, undercover employees, and informants stitched together the random group of outliers. The alleged ringleader, Adam Fox, lived alone in the dilapidated cellar of a strip mall vacuum repair shop without running water or a toilet, then organized training and surveillance trips to produce evidence before luring them to an arrest site in Michigan on October 7th of 2020. But a Grand Rapids jury in April... Serafin said these investigations rarely get to the prosecution stage, acquitted two men and ended with a hung jury for two others after the defense convinced jurors their clients had been entrapped by the FBI. 
In a scathing closing argument during the first trial, Christopher Gibbons, Fox's public defender, denounced the FBI's conduct as unacceptable in America. That's not how it works. They don't make terrorists so we can arrest them. But Julie Kelly says, unfortunately, that's precisely what is happening in America. And it's beyond unacceptable. It threatens national security as the FBI ignores legitimate dangers and destroys innocent lives. And, of course, propping up the phony narrative requires the use of sketchy informants, often working at the direction of equally sketchy FBI handlers. Forcing the government to tell the whole truth in court about the CHS program undoubtedly will expose another crisis-level scandal at the irredeemably corrupt Federal Bureau of Investigation. Look, I don't expect you to agree, but I would ask you, please consider, is this a possibility? I'll let you answer that one yourself. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'd like to thank the sponsors of my program, the ones who make this possible on a day-to-day basis. The ones who help me live out what I think is actually a mission, or at least a purpose I'm supposed to be fulfilling, and that is speaking truth to whomever is seeking truth. Those sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also HSLAmmo.com. You'll find links to each of them in my show notes, which you can find at the BrianHydeShow.com. So I want to try and spend this the next couple of segments giving you some encouragement. And here's why I want to do this, because uh, this is, this could be a very interesting week for a number of reasons. Economically, there's some really interesting stuff developing. I know the, the markets were extremely volatile last week. By the way, when I, need to, when I need a good assessment of, hey, what's going on in the markets, I have to give. This is my loud and, uh, and open shout out to my buddy, C-Train, Carl. You are the best go-to source for this. Carl's worked in the financial arena for many, many years, and, and he'll tell me straight. You know, if this is good, it's good. If it's not, he'll tell me. But uh, I know the Fed is calling an emergency closed-door meeting today. Uh, like my, uh, my uh, cousin-in-law, Russ, says, he's like, man, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that meeting. You know, China and Japan are dropping U.S. Uh, bonds. And actually, China has told its state banks, get ready for a massive dump of holdings in U.S. dollars. I don't know what all that means, but I expect it, uh, it isn't going to smooth things out if you get my drift. Wink, wink. You know, it's, it's, it's getting pretty crazy. And in the meantime, the frustration and anger that we see, you know, politically continues to build. There's, there's, there's a growing disconnect. The, I guess what I'm getting at, I'm not telling you anything here that you don't know in, in, in relating these things, but um, it, there's, there's a very easy possibility of becoming discouraged at what you see happening around us. It can totally seem overwhelming. So there are a couple things that I would like to share with you, and you can find links to these in my show notes that I hope would give you some nourishment for your soul and some reassurance. First of all, that yes, it's not just your imagination. There are other people aware that, um, this, this is really happening. You know, the conspiracy theorists, the ones who warned us about what to expect with vaccine passports and forced vaccinations and so forth, believe it or not, they're warning us about some other things here that probably merit our attention as well, like doing away with cash or doing away with the dollar, replacing it with some kind of digital 
central bank-controlled currency, which, when combined with a social credit score, could really amount to a whole new system of control at a whole new level that none of us have ever seen in our lives before. That's daunting. I'd like to take you a slightly different direction, though. I want to start with something from Barry Brownstein, who has just been knocking them out of the park one after another this last few weeks. His latest essay is called Thoughts and Prayers Rule the World. And there's a subtitle here, Prayer is the Contemplation of the Facts of Life from the Highest Point of View. I realize not everybody believes in God, not everybody believes in the power of prayer, but I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not one of those people. I believe that, that prayer is one of the most overlooked resources that we have. And in fact, the, when I avail myself of it, I have never regretted seeking help from the Almighty. Never. Even if the answer I get isn't necessarily the one I was hoping for, you know, it's, it's still a reminder that uh, above it all, I can be reminded who's in charge. And that brings peace to my heart. So Barry Brownstein in this essay says, uh, he starts with a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, cause and effect, means and ends, seed and fruit cannot be severed, for the effect already blooms in the cause. The end pre-exists in the means, the fruit, in the seed. And Barry Brownstein says two things can be true at once, like Vladimir Putin had no justifications for invading Ukraine, and American foreign policy is insane for not giving Putin an off-ramp to end his disastrous war. He says, at this point, it's not clear who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, and it's reasonable to be skeptical that the Russians did it. Alarmingly, though, NATO's Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg vowed to be resolute in providing support to Ukraine as it continues to defend itself against Russia's aggression for as long as it takes. Now, remember, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and a NATO bureaucrat has no constitutional power to direct U.S. foreign policy. James Madison in Federalist Number 10 wrote, Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Needless to say, Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell, and Stoltenberg are not enlightened statesmen. Barry Brownstein then says, In 2015, Senator Tom Cotton wrote, The Constitution requires that a major foreign commitment that binds our nation have a broad consensus among the people and not result from the parochial interests of a minority or even a narrow majority. As matters of war and peace... Treaties should reflect a strong union, not a divided nation. Today, Senator Cotton has forgotten his wisdom about foreign policy as he demands victory over Russia. Robert Wright has been a wise critic of the victory school of thought. This war's outcome can be lose-lose. The losers can simultaneously be Russia, Ukraine, America, Europe, and the rest of the world. He writes, many American elites, politicians, journalists, even think tankers, have been reacting to this war as if it were a football game or some other purely zero-sum contest. They've celebrated Ukrainian gains on the battlefield with no ambivalence, blissfully unaware that dramatic Ukrainian military success was always bound to encourage Kremlin risk-taking, raising the chances of regional or even nuclear war. End quote. So, Biden needs Putin to be an enemy. The Biden administration has convinced many Americans that rampaging inflation is mainly due to Putin rather than out-of-control spending. Today, in short, the threat of nuclear war is real. If the threat level seems high now, imagine where it will be after years of economic depression or recession. Barry Brownstein says, if you feel powerless and are inclined to pray, I offer you some thoughts. 
He says, in 1867, in a church just outside the gates of Harvard, before the Phi Beta Kappa Society, Ralph Waldo Emerson delivered a talk, The Progress of Culture. The nation was still in the aftermath of the Civil War. At the age of 64, the great philosopher was characteristically optimistic as he spoke of the power of spiritual law. Great men, Emerson said, are they who see that spiritual is stronger than material force, that thoughts rule the world. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Emerson rather believed that, the, that right action and dependable power flowed from aligning our thinking with universal law, an alignment that only occurs when we are one with God. In his classic essay, Self-Reliance, Emerson gave clear guidelines as to what he believed constituted true prayer. Quote, prayer that craves a particular commodity, anything less than all good, is vicious. Prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. It is the soliloquy of a beholding and jubilant soul. It is the Spirit of God pronouncing His works good. But prayer as a means to effect a private end is meanness and theft. It opposes dualism and not unity in nature and consciousness. End quote. So, applied to the current crisis... Are we willing to let go of vicious thoughts and pray, in Emerson's words, for all good? If no American statesperson arises to facilitate a settlement that doesn't crush Putin, is it because not enough of us see the humanity in both the long-suffering Russians and the Ukrainians? In his book, The Government of Eden, Spiritual Principles for Living in Peace, American spiritual teacher Joel Goldsmith wrote, The three-dimensional man, the man of earth, lives in a world circumscribed by his own limited concept of himself and his world, believing that that is all the world there is and that in order to survive, it is necessary to lie, cheat, and to use all the tricks of the trade, even up to and including warfare. To him, might is a right and normal way, and anything else is a sign of weakness. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says, writing almost 100 years ago, Goldsmith realized it was insane to believe that any government of men is going to establish peace on earth or peace among men or stability in human relationships necessary to harmonious living. He renounced the idea that by destroying some, by destroying our enemy or competitor, we can live and prosper, or that by taking away someone's freedom, we can become greater. Now, I'm going to have to skip ahead a little bit here. I want you to read not only this essay from Barry Brownstein, but I want you to check out a couple of linked essays that he has. One is uh, To Defend Your Liberty, Cultivate Your Inner Freedom. Marvelous piece. I was going to, in fact, I shared this in the show notes last week. I didn't get a chance to talk about it on air, but absolutely worth your time. This will teach you how to move beyond that destructive personal mindset. And then he also has a great essay called We Lie in the Lap of Immense Intelligence. So if you're looking for a few reading assignments, I'm telling you, these are the ones that I think will will lift your spirits and expand your thinking and, and most importantly, temporarily allow you to step out of that realm of the political where everything is a struggle to the death and it's always us versus them and to, gra- to, to grab that uh, larger perspective that helps you see that, yes, politics is a part of our world, but it's only one facet of a much broader, much more complicated, and in most ways, much more beautiful existence. Don't forget to turn your attention to the divine every so often. I think we all need to be reminded who is really in charge. 
and the political leaders of the World Economic Forum, it ain't them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, there is something I'd like to point your attention to. If you are so interested, I would encourage you to come to my website and sign up. It's a little feature I do on a daily basis. It, uh, right, it's, it's currently syndicated, but I'm, I'm trying to grow this and, and spread it to as many uh, radio stations as will carry it. It's a daily two-minute feature called, no, called Hide in Plain Sight. And it's a very non-political two-minute message. Just, you know, I'm, I don't have all the answers. I, I'm not a wise man, but I have had the opportunity to rub shoulders with some really smart, savvy people who, who have goodness at the basis of what they do. And I share just some thoughts on, you know, th- a different, just a slightly different way of seeing the world each day. And if you would like to see that in print form, I will email a copy of the script to you. All you have to do is go to the com. Click on Hide in Plain Sight. You can check out what the latest, uh, the latest uh, script that was published. And if you want to subscribe, please feel free to. I'll drop it right in your email inbox, just kind of a little daily affirmation of something that isn't political. I know, what a concept. So in trying to, uh, again, lift your spirits and give you a chance to, to kind of break free of the stress that threatens to bind us all down, I have a couple of articles I'd like to refer to you for your consideration. One is from Richard Morrison, and it's a review of Entrepreneur Magazine's editor-in-chief's Jason Pfeiffer's take on how to stop panicking and embrace the future. It's a nice little pep talk. And, you know, the fact is, uh, Jason Pfeiffer says, you really don't have a choice. Change is all around you. The best you can do is get out ahead of the steamroller of inevitability and make the best of it. Okay, that's a lesson I took a long time to learn personally. I think uh, most of my life, I've been one of those guys who just, I try to avoid change. I want to keep things just nice and normal and predictable so that I know exactly what's going to happen. No surprises and anything like that. And it took me a very long time to realize that despite my best efforts, the change was going to happen. And I got great advice from from a dear radio friend, Randy Rose, years ago, told me, you know, if you've been in this business long enough, you're going to have to learn how to reinvent yourself every so often. He was right. And by learning to be flexible and learning to, to roll with the changes, to look for the opportunities that that change represents, it has left me much happier. That doesn't mean, by the way, that change still isn't stressful. It is. Okay, when change comes along, it's like, ah, okay. So you start off in a new direction. But if you understand that change is normal and it's, it's a natural part of life and that to part of why we are here is to learn how to make our way not because it was so easy that we could just, you know, basically set cruise control and ride it on down, you know, to, to the end of a very happy and fulfilling life where, you know, the curve was endlessly upward in terms of satisfaction and prosperity and happiness. Nope, it's not how it works. We are here to learn. We are here to grow. We are here to become more than what we are right at this moment. And the only way that happens is for change to take place. And I think you'll find this article, again, this is from the Foundation for Economic Education from Richard Morrison. This is a really nice pep talk about uh, not just how to, you know, 
to st- stabilize your career and to to basically uh, you know prepare yourself for for the changing economics which I mean we could see some real change like real change coming fast but it's about developing that mindset that's okay with change that says this is part of life and sometimes when it's hard you know the only way to to move forward is straight through the hard stuff okay those of you who've served in the military you're probably familiar with the the phrase embrace the suck well that's part of the process and those times when life sucks they're just a season but if you move through them you're going to look back on the growth that you experienced and it's always after you you know once once you've moved through the difficult time and things have stabilized and all right things are looking pretty good once again that's when you start to see the growth and hopefully you can appreciate those hard times for what they are. But if you want to learn how to stop panicking and embrace the future, here's a great place to start. Also, I'm going to recommend for your reading an article from Logan Albright about what we could learn from a 5th century Roman about finding happiness in a world filled with pain, loss, and injustice. Now, this was a Roman statesman he's talking about by the name of Boethius. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. This is a guy who was unjustly imprisoned, tortured, and executed. Well, that's, that's a happy story, right? But before his death in 524 AD, Boethius left us a priceless lesson about the gift of life. Now, Logan Albright, the author of this article, talks about how his mother passed away back in August, four days short of her 70th birthday. And he says, when we lose something we love, it's easy to feel bitter, resentful, cheated, It's easy to feel that life is cruel, systematically robbing us of everything good until we're left with nothing. And while these feelings are understandable, forgivable even, they miss far more than they capture about the human condition. He says, today when I look around, I see a lot of bitterness in the world. I see anger at injustice and at poverty. I see resentment at promises unfulfilled. I see blame being directed at people belonging to different generations, the wrong political parties, and different ethnicities. Everyone seems so unhappy, convinced that the world is in decline, ruined by those who came before us, to, came before rather to cheat us out of our birthright through the malice of prejudice and greed. Now he says, of course, there is some legitimacy to all of these complaints, and indeed it could be hard not to buckle down under the onslaught of bad news that seems forever to pour down upon our heads from the doom-laden buckets of cable news and social media. But while there's good reason for pessimism, there is equally good reason for optimism and gratitude. Yet those are two things I don't see very much at all. In fact, he says, I can already hear you scoffing. Gratitude? I'm supposed to be grateful that politicians start wars abroad and oppress their citizens at home? To the corporations that scar the land and exploit workers? To the baby boomers who created many of the problems we face today? And his response is, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Just hear me out. 1,500 years ago, a Roman statesman named Boethius was imprisoned by his enemies, and while in confinement, he wrote a little book called The Consolation of Philosophy. Now, while this book is not so widely known today, for centuries, it was one of the most popular books in the world, and for good reason. In it, Boethius recounts an imaginary conversation between himself and the personification of philosophy. He begins by lamenting the injustice of his fate, only to be consoled by philosophy, pointing out that despite appearances, he really has nothing to complain about after all. Good fortune, she observes, is fickle by nature. Anyone who chooses to enjoy the gifts of fortune does so in the knowledge that sooner or later they will be taken away. 
I think we need to reread that last one again, that last line. Anyone who chooses to enjoy the gifts of fortune does so in the knowledge that sooner or later they will be taken away. That's one we may want to write on our hearts. In other words, we should focus on the good times while they last, not obsess over the end, which must inevitably come. All good things are fleeting. We know this, and so should not be disappointed when our allotted time runs out. A child who's lucky enough to vacation at Disney World may be sad when it's time to come home, but the fact that a joyful experience doesn't last forever doesn't make it any less joyful. Only a fool would prefer never to experience anything good in the apprehension that, well, one day it's just going to disappear. The consolation of philosophy makes many compelling points. But the author here says, for me, the most powerful is that life is a gift to be cherished. It may be an imperfect gift. At times, it's even a frustrating one. But it is a gift, nonetheless. And if we accept it, we should do so with appropriate gratitude and humility. Maybe you can't afford a new house or to go to college. But if you're reading this, chances are you can afford food and some sort of a roof over your head. Maybe there's too much pollution and too many trees are chopped down. But the fact that trees exist at all is a miracle. He says the great illness of our age is a myopia that prevents us from gaining the proper perspective over our place in history or in the larger world. For too many people, yesterday may as well not have existed, never mind last year or last century. The crushing poverty of the 19th century peasant or the modern Ethiopian are too remote for them even to consider. The fact that it takes two incomes to support a family, at least in the style to which we've grown accustomed, seems reasonable enough or seems reason enough to rebel against civilization itself as a failed enterprise. He says bitterness arises because our expectations in life, poorly calibrated by Instagram and the po- promises of politicians and professors, are not being met. But should they be? The world does not owe us everything. Our simple state of existing doesn't confer any obligation on others to satisfy our every want. No one has been cheated out of any birthright because, to put it bluntly, we have no birthright to begin with. We might have easily perished before drawing our first breath, as so many millions have over the course of human history. But no, instead, we have the astonishing good fortune to be alive in a time of endless miracles and opportunities. There is more to this essay from Logan Albright from the Foundation for Economic Education. I don't know if you need an uplifting kick in the seat of the pants. I certainly have this week and likely will in the days ahead, but this is a good place to find it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.